Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains themes and descriptions some listeners may find disturbing. Content warnings are available in the show description. I'm Chris McCausland and welcome back to That Podcast, where we rely on the kindness of strangers and wonder if generally we're good people or not so much. In the first half, we heard stories about how even in the wildest situations, people demonstrate a huge amount of compassion and curiosity and were hungry to connect across isolation and boundaries. But now we reach Act 3, where we question kindness and start to look at the ugly underbelly of the whole concept of the kindness of strangers. There was a brilliant comedian called Ian Cognito, who is sadly no longer with us. You know, he was a very confrontational character on stage. And I was doing a gig with him a few years ago. I say a few, time flies. It was probably about six or seven years ago. And he was hosting the show, comparing it, as we say in the biz. And he went on after me and he goes, oh, ladies and gentlemen, that, that Chris McCausland, he's a nice guy, isn't he? Not like me, but then again, I don't have to be, do I? Because I'm not fucking blind. And it was outrageous. And it was hilarious in the moment. But you know what? It was also bang on the money. Because sometimes, you know, I find that I probably do have to be nicer to people than I sometimes feel like being in the moment. Because either I'm relying on them for some form of assistance or because I'm just unable to just fuck off on my own when I've had enough of the conversation. And I'm just stuck there making pleasant chit-chat. You know, it can be horrible to be cornered by circumstance into relying on the kindness of strangers. It can be horrible to relinquish control like that. And for some people, that's more frequently a situation than for others. Playwright, director and performer Athena Stevens reflects on how complicated an idea relying on the kindness of strangers can be. When, like her and me, you have to do that more often than you want. Whoever you are, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. I hear that line in the drawl of my country. It's a familiar sound, having studied in the backwoods that Tennessee Williams called his home growing up. I feel the southern humidity cling to me as I repeat the words as my own. I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. Am I the only one out there who wants to respond to that with, well, that's a stupid thing to do? 
It's the word dependent that bothers me. As someone with a disability, I was raised with the goal of being as independent as possible, hanging over my head, choosing to depend on the kindness of strangers, has always struck me as manipulative, throwing oneself away, expecting to be caught time and again, has built within it a demand. Someone else will help clean up the mess. It'll all work out, because it has to. Take care of me, and we'll get along fine. But I wasn't always so cynical. In my early 20s, I used to say that I didn't simply believe in miracles. I depended on them. I depended on the right person to open the right door at the right time. I have looked at an unreachable object on the top shelf at Tesco, thankful to have an observant shopper offer to retrieve it for me. Back in 2008, I met a woman from Lithuania on a train during an emergency evacuation. She stayed with me despite the alarm when no one else would help me get off the train and safely home. When everyone else was fleeing from the fire, a kind stranger stayed. Three months later, we met for coffee, and I asked her if she would be willing to live with me rent-free in exchange for helping me with dressing, meals, and other tasks. In short, I asked a stranger to come live with me. And, to some degree, allow me to be dependent on her. You can't live in a body like mine and not depend on the kindness of strangers. When she moved in with me, she was planning on staying three months. Instead, we lived together in a symbiotic relationship for two years. I was in my mid-twenties, now pursuing my first disability discrimination lawsuit against the same train company who left me no egress during the evacuation. In one night, strangers were both cruel and kind. 
For the first year we lived together, my mind was never addressed. While she was at work, my heart would dread hearing the sound of the post hit our welcome mat. Because with it came the chance that there would be another brown envelope from the rail company's solicitors trying to intimidate me into dropping my case. On the day such a letter arrived, she would find me white-faced and sitting on my bed, going through the inevitable phases of trauma, would come when you stand up to systemic discrimination. She was there, both as a friend and as a witness. Then, in February 2020, she came from Lithuania, with her two-year-old toddler in tow. It was meant to be a month-long visit. She had recently experienced her own cruelty of strangers and needed a safe place to land for a few weeks to get her bearings again. I told her to come whenever and Stay as long as she needed. Lockdown happened. Mom and child ended up staying five months in my spare room after flights home stopped. This is how I came to live with someone who was once a stranger on a train and a toilet training two-year-old during a pandemic. This is why I learned about nappy sizes and learned how not to pull my hair out when I heard the theme song to Peppa Pig once again. During that time, we lost count of the number of times we cried in front of each other. Out of frustration, out of laughter, out of heartbreak. Nice story, eh? The right stranger always comes along when you need them. Weren't we lucky and all that? Strangers can be kind, but they can also be cruel. If last year, with all its protests and masks, taught us anything, it's that people can be both. When I started this commission, I set out to dramatize the story of a meeting a stranger on a train. The political rebel in me who fights for independence, 
wants to tell you how the world expects disabled people to be dependent on strangers, how it keeps us in our place. Here's an aggravating thing. Whenever I sat at my desk to write this brief, I couldn't dramatize this relationship. A story needs conflict. And as saccharine and annoying as it sounds, I couldn't find conflict in our friendship. Rather, the conflict was in me. That night, my friend and I met. Her kindness rescued me. But I can't depend on strangers being kind. I've experienced the world too much to know how things can work out. Most of you hearing this are strangers. After my voice starts vibrating in your ears, you'll reduce my story to able-bodied person saves the girl in wheelchair. A feel-good, symbiotic wink-fest. As humans, we tell ourselves stories we want to hear. Colson Whitehead writes, The world may be mean, but people don't have to be. Not if they refuse. That is the anthem of my hope that people will choose rightly, even when it is difficult, even among strangers. On that night, everyone else on the train saw me and kept walking, but she refused. It was a choice. She made, and all relationships should start with choice, the choice to stop, the choice to see someone complexly, the choice to be kind. The choice to grow together. The choice to be vulnerable. The choice to go from stranger to loved one. And to find that such a commitment is more dependable than expecting strangers to be as you wish them to be.
I keep coming back to this blitz spirit thing because it keeps on popping up in the rhetoric, doesn't it? The coronavirus, like the blitz, is indiscriminate. It doesn't care who it affects. Just like the German bombs in 1940, it's just as likely to take our Buckingham Palace as the East End. Except it's not. The German bombs fell mostly on military targets like Docklands and industrial areas where the working classes lived. The people who had Anderson shelters were the people who could afford gardens to put them in. It does disproportionately affect people based on where they live. Financial situation, the elderly with health conditions, people of colour. It affects working class people, people who are on the front lines of the pandemic, whether in the health service or making deliveries and taking out the bins. I am a health care assistant for the NHS. The pandemic in the beginning was difficult because obviously we had to wear full PPE. In the first couple of months, it was a bit scary because we were very limited in what we could order. So we had to remain cautious about usage. So that was one thing that I was really worried about. The other thing I was worried about was the lack of information, basically, because a lot of people, the surgery that I work in, the number of patients are high number of Asian population age from probably between 50 and 80 and they don't understand English and they weren't very familiar with COVID because obviously COVID was a new virus it was all new new information so we had constantly people coming in with cough and colds explaining to them that you need to go back home you need to isolate so in the beginning that was a bit scary when the second wave hit and obviously we went back on another lockdown I was seeing a lot of my patients whom were suffering from acute illnesses such as chronic heart conditions, chronic kidney conditions, you know, type 1 diabetes and there was a huge influx of patients coming in who were seriously unwell and then there was a lot of people passing away and I think that for me had a very emotional toll because I was caring for these patients for more than two years. I've seen them with their carers, you know, we formed a very good relationship. I just emotionally and mentally, I just feel completely exhausted and regarding the clapping for the NHS. During the first lockdown, yeah, it was good. But I think what we need to recognise is that people in my role, such as healthcare assistant, we are not recognised in what we do. A lot of people are not familiar about what kind of role we serve, especially within the primary care, the GP surgeries. We literally do everything that a nurse does, but however, we just don't have that paper signed as a nurse degree. And when people talk about this 1% rise, for me, it doesn't really have an effect because we don't get the rise. Dr Charlie Hall at the University of Kent, who has done some really interesting work on the comparison between the Blitz and now, points out that this heavily mythologised attitude of resilience, stoicism and camaraderie does more harm than good. And I agree, it's just a way of telling us that, you know, if we're struggling, it's because we're not demonstrating enough cheer in the face of adversity. Because we're not pulling together and being nice enough to each other. As if we can deliver shopping to every lonely granny in the country whose pension barely covers the lecky. As if we can just pull ourselves together and stiff up a lip our way back into economic comfort and good health. As if this crisis is just what we need to come together as a nation and turn over some shiny new leaf. When for some people, this experience isn't as new as you'd think. When lockdown started last year, I was unemployed. And I had been unemployed for approximately six or seven months prior to that. At the time, I was very much sort of actively looking for jobs and then lockdown happened and it was a case where 
even the people who were recruiting had stopped recruiting entirely. I had a couple of interviews that were lined up that were just cancelled and never rescheduled. And when the pandemic happened, when lockdown happened, people were talking about how they felt isolated or they felt like they were trapped in the house or they were cut off from the outside world. And it's funny because those exact emotions and feelings were what I was feeling the whole time for the past six, seven months that I had been stuck in the house essentially. And that was both to do with the fact that I wasn't working, I was struggling to find work. And also I was trying to live life as normally as I could whilst living with quite severe depression and not having any medication, not having anything to help me get through that. So then lockdown happens and things kind of just really got from bad to worse. In some aspects, it was a little bit comforting because I felt like the emotions that I've been feeling, so the emotions of feeling trapped, feeling like everything's bleak out there, feeling extremely isolated, feeling like I don't really have a purpose, etc., which a lot of people were feeling when lockdown happened. I felt like this is how I've been feeling for the past seven, six, seven months. And now this feeling is being shared by so many other people across the world. I mean, obviously I wasn't happy that people were feeling like this, but it felt like a bit of a comfort. And also before, when I was going through these difficult months in my life, it was that way where everyone else was living life normally. And I very much felt like I was the only person who was in a very isolated bubble of myself, basically. And then lockdown happened and it felt like, well, everyone's in their own isolated bubble. In Scotland here in August, the lockdown rules had relaxed a little bit and we were allowed to go out again. And I was sort of forcing myself to leave the house. I was forcing myself to see people because it had just been a really, really, really terrible experience for me. And I wanted to see my friends again. I wanted to be around people. But I was getting crippling anxiety attacks every time I'd need to socialise. And it was in August that I actually decided for the first time in my life ever to actually speak to a doctor about this. It's almost like it took a worldwide pandemic. It took such a huge thing like that for me to actually address something for me, which is really personal, which is having struggled with mental health since I was a teenager. I mean, that was a good 15 years ago. And I, you know, for the majority of my adult life, I struggled with my mental health and it's taken this long and it took a pandemic for me to fuck up the courage to be able to actually get some support and get some help and reach out. And also, I guess, a good thing that happened as well at the very end of 2020 was that after many, many years of being unemployed, I managed to secure employment as well. So I started a new job. Hi, this is Leanna Benjamin. I am a playwright, I am a blogger and a human rights activist, and I am based in Leeds. COVID-19 has affected many people in very different ways. I keep saying that it is that we're all going through the same storm, but we're all in different boats. In some respects, it's not been new for me as a wheelchair user, as somebody with a debilitating illness, being stuck at home for long periods of time is, I would say, my normal. However, with the pandemic, it has been more restrictive. I've had to go back to completely relying on people to provide me with the basics. Getting my food in, getting care in, all of those everyday things has had to be completely reliant on outside help, some which I've paid for and some which has come in thanks to the generosity of friends and family. But it's been very restrictive. 
I had a situation where a delivery driver refused to bring the shopping into my house. So I've spent quite a bit of money, got the shopping, it's in bags, it's raining and it's at my front door. But as a wheelchair user, I cannot bring it inside of my house. And we've had this back and forth about the support that I need and just asking to put it in the hallway, refuse point blank. I posted it on Facebook and so many people were ready to come around to the house and help me and I got support and got that brought inside. And even though they effectively putting themselves at risk, they came masked up and supported me. And that is not a one-off experience, that is one of many experiences. There have been the other side of things that I've also experienced and I've been aware of where there have been negative things online. The kind of us and them scenario still exists and it, in fact, I would say the gap is widening and it's almost like there are certain people feel like we should be sacrificed and it's okay to leave us and let us go so that the healthier people can survive and obviously that's caused an awful lot of stress and frustration and anger within the disabled community and for me particularly there have been days when I've seen things that have really just upset me and angered me because I have a right to survive just like everybody else. And this is not something that I cause. This is something that's happened to me. And my quality of life should be supported. Um, accessing the support services has been problematic because they're in disarray and they're overworked. So it has been very difficult, but thankfully I have an amazing support network, which I am aware that not everybody has. It's one long lockdown. I've only had six times that I've left the house. There have been a handful of times where I've been in my garden at the back, but I haven't been doing the walks that people have been doing. I haven't felt safe to go outside. I've got a fish tank now, and it's allowed me to have something else to focus on. And I know it sounds daft or whatever, but it's just having something else to focus on in this craziness. It has been really, really helpful. My name is Barbara Ahmed. I live in London. From 2004 to 2015, I spent 11 years in prison. Well, actually 10 different prisons in two countries, the UK and the US. For eight years in the UK, from 2004 to 2012, I was detained without charge. I hold the record for the longest detained without charge British citizen in the modern history of the UK. In 2012, I was extradited to the United States of America and I spent the next two years in a US supermax prison alongside Connecticut's death row. During that period, I pleaded guilty to an offer that was made to me by prosecutors who said, if you plead guilty, then you can go home. And at that point, I had been detained 10 years without charge. So I pleaded guilty and I came home in July 2015. So I spent 11 years in prison, of which six years was in some form of isolation. Four years of it was in small group isolation, where I was held together with six or seven other detainees in a small unit. So we were not able to leave that unit. And two years I spent in complete solitary confinement, complete isolation in a supermax prison in America. So for two years, that was my life. I was not allowed to leave myself except for an hour three times a week for exercise 
and a 15 minute shower three times a week. So lockdown for me, I hope I don't sound arrogant by saying that this lockdown for me has not affected me in the least. One of the things that people have struggled with, and especially amongst people around me, friends and family, is not the lockdown per se, but it's the uncertainty of it. And that is something that I can relate to because at least for 10 of my 11 years in prison, I lived not knowing when I would leave prison. It could be the next day, the next week, the next month or the next year. And I think it's the uncertainty that kills people. I had these three strategies for dealing with isolation, which I call the three S's. The first was sunlight. The second was sweat. And the third one was a shower. These three strategies I used when I was in isolation and they made a huge difference to my day-to-day -day living. So where possible, I would go on exercise and we would get a little bit of daylight there coming through the railings, even though it was an underground pit, but we would get that. And where I was not able to go out, then there was about 20 minutes every day where the sun would shine into my cell through the slit window. So whenever that would happen, I would take my top off and I would just stand there and I would just follow the sunlight as it came into my cell. Sunlight had an instant effect on uplifting me and changing my mood. It's like it would change everything. The second thing was sweat, which was exercise. I had my own exercise routine and I would try to keep fit and do whatever I could inside my cell. And that would make a huge difference. And the third was shower. And you'll be surprised just going into the shower and just having a shower, how instantly it can change your mood and it can uh, pick you up. And as for the long term, what was going to happen to me, in addition to my faith and my religion, knowing that everything that I was going through, that God had a great wisdom behind it. I also had stories and accounts of people in history who had gone through similar struggles and hardships and somehow they had made it and they had survived and they had come out of it. So that gave me hope that one day that might happen to me. And that's what happened to me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, you know, if we all find lockdown so intolerable, 
Why do we let that be some people's reality all the time? I know we're supposed to pull together as a community, kindness of strangers and all that, but can that bridge the gap of some really massive structural inequality? Do we really think that we can make society more just by just being nice? It's unfortunate that questions of loneliness and isolation are very much in the social consciousness at the moment, but once the virus has gone, I reckon we'll very quickly revert to the mean. And there's a double meaning in that. Math joke. So here, with a dark and more satirical perspective on the meaning of kindness, is a piece by Tim Crouch. Originally written for ETT's Fucked Up Bedtime Stories for Adults audio series, which came out last year. When her fury at the captain's knighthood had finally abated, when they'd taken her friend Maeve's body to the mortuary, when Dennis's alarm had stopped bleating through the corridors, when they'd been round with the milky drinks, that's when the idea came to her. In the morning, she took an old plaid skirt from a chest of drawers. She buried her face into it, and a memory flashed of a day out with her son. She reached under the bed for her sewing basket and set to work. By lunchtime, she was unhappy with the first result, which she put to one side. Lunch was cottage pie. That evening, the news came from upstairs that Philip was dead and that Pam would not be far behind him. It seemed to have swept through the third floor like a stiff broom. When someone died, their room was deep cleaned and their clothes were disinfected, washed and bundled up in bin bags left by the fire exit near her room. She took to rummaging through these bags and taking things that caught her fancy. Pam's faded pinafore dress, Philip's lovely blue cotton twill shirt, a distinctive Jaeger blouse that Maeve had worn at the Christmas party. Within a week, she'd made twenty of them. Each one took concentration. She had no natural aptitude, no pattern to work from, and her fingers were thickened by arthritis. Celeste offered to bring in fabrics for her. Celeste's family were Ghanaian. They had no shortage of bright materials. That's very kind, she replied. I'll manage. The next day, she learned that Celeste was showing symptoms and had begun to self-isolate at home. A number of women along the corridor offered to join her. She declined their generosity. She was not a sweet old lady. In the days before the virus, she would often eat alone in the dining room or sit in the conservatory with the paper. She would be 90 on the 27th of the month and she planned to have 90 made by then to match her years. For the nurses, she said, and the carers. For the ones who had given so much. At the beginning of the second week, Dennis died. Dennis was on the ground floor, like her. At least his alarm would now be silent. She had admired Dennis. He was only 78. It was a crime that his family weren't able to be with him when staff were in and out, back and forth, wearing protective equipment they'd bought off the internet. Within two days, she'd made six from Dennis's old tweed blazer. 
There were fifty of them now, in an assortment of fabrics and patterns, and word was getting out. The woman who ran the home, Vanessa, paid her a visit to see if she wanted to talk to a local news reporter who'd been sniffing around. Vanessa stood stiffly at the threshold of the room, a handmade clear plastic visor clamped over her face. She looked tired. It was hard to understand her muffled inquiry. No, she replied, snipping a thread. Nothing. No publicity. Nothing. Despite her insistence, the local channel still mentioned her in a roundup of inspiring regional stories. There was a rumour that Celeste had died in hospital. Celeste. Celeste, who would sing to her as she washed her hair. She persevered. There were seventy of them now, in two shoeboxes beside the bed. Max, her community health worker, said that he'd make sure they went to the right people. The nurses and the carers. The ones who had given so much. The food they served at the home was never the best. But now... It seemed to her to have lost its flavour entirely. When his car had dropped him off at the side entrance, when he'd been through the metrics with Ginny, when he'd checked with his team on WhatsApp, when he'd understood the optics, when he'd washed his hands, when he'd calmed his hair, when he'd finished his latte, when he'd organised his papers, when he'd checked his jacket pocket. That's when he stepped onto the podium and addressed the hall. He never felt adequately briefed, no politician ever did, but... A good education had given him the confidence to ride out most situations with a combination of charm and generalities. He sensed that this occasion would be no different, but he also knew that he had a trick up his sleeve, as did all his colleagues who were rolling out new regulations that day. The government were now being crystal clear on policy. At the start of all this, they'd stated that science did not support the claim that widespread use would have a significant impact. Now, it would be mandatory to wear them in confined spaces, in shops, and on public transport. Government critics thought this decision had come far too late. There was condemnation over mixed signals and weak leadership. It was his job, as part of today's campaign, to convey the message and to reassure the public. Throughout the country, he said, good citizens have been doing their part to support the war against the invisible enemy. His well-oiled rhetoric obscured a well-honed misdirection. He spoke about one tireless ally in the battle, an elderly care home resident who, despite her age, had taken it upon herself to do her bit like those wartime housewives who sent their pots and pans to be melted down into planes, this redoubtable character had cut up her own clothes to protect the key workers. He reached into his jacket pocket and produced what was unmistakably a rectangle of Dennis's tweed blazer, pleated 
hemmed with elastic straps. He named its maker, insisting that she should be honoured and remembered. He said it was his sad duty to announce that, tragically, the day before her ninetieth birthday, she had lost her own private struggle with the virus, and that what he held in his hand was a testament to a life dedicated to others. With a flourish uncharacteristic of this guarded junior minister, he placed the cloth across his nose and mouth and pulled the straps behind his ears. He attempted to inhale. From the perspective of someone at the back of the hall, it looked as though he then began to dance. When the private ambulance had driven away from the care home, when she'd sanitised her hands, when she'd uploaded the home's latest figures to Public Health England, when she'd made herself a milky drink, that's when Vanessa switched on the television in the empty lounge room. The Secretary of State was speaking. She was telling an inspiring story. She presented a rectangle of Jaeger print, unmistakably from Maeve's beloved blouse. The audience applauded. She placed it over her mouth and nose and pulled the elastic straps behind her ears. She attempted to inhale. At once, the face mask flexed, contracted and tightened like a vacuum sealer. She grasped at it with her manicured fingers and tried to peel it off. The more she struggled, the tighter its grip. Her body contorted, bucked and convulsed. Her complexion flushed. Her eyes began to dilate. A trapped sound came from her throat. She clung to the lectern. Her well-ordered hair loosened and flailed. The journalists in the briefing room were slow to realise what was happening. She was drowning in no water in front of them. Her aides took action. The room broke into a chaos of noise and frantic gesture, scrambling at the mask, calling for assistance, screams and shouts. The Secretary of State's kitten heels could not hold her, and she jerked to the floor, the sinews in her neck straining, her ribcage heaving pointlessly, the agony of asphyxiation. There was nothing they could do to help her. When her movements had stopped, a first aider made a hopeless attempt at CPR. Nothing. The community health worker, Max, had been approached by a PR company about the face masks. The government had been looking for an angle, they said. These things would become a symbol of hope. A series of announcements, new rules about protection, speeches up and down the country, from the PM and department heads to junior ministers. Ninety of them. From Plymouth to Carlisle. No one could question the government's dedication.
That was Milky Drinks by Tim Crouch. You know, while that piece was written in what feels like a different time, there's still so much about it that rings true now. Human kindness is a double-edged sword. It's incredible and admirable and inimitable that, for example, a 100-year-old man determined to help raised over £30 million for the NHS. What an unparalleled testament to the human capacity for kindness. What an immense and unforgettable generosity of spirit from him and everyone that supported him. What a shame that his family had to hide the online filth that some decided to throw his way because they're rotten inside. And also, what a tragedy that the NHS is so structurally underfunded and struggling that it needs charity to survive when it's the most essential service that we've got in this country. There's no end to the beautiful examples of human kindness that people have demonstrated over this pandemic. But what are the big structural gaps that these acts of charity and kindness are trying to paper over? My life has changed completely because of COVID and I'm looking on this as a second life. Back in March, right at the start of the COVID epidemic, a week before lockdown started, my husband went out for the very last time and unbeknownst to us, there he caught COVID. If the government had locked down a week earlier, we probably wouldn't have got it. I got it from him three or four days later and we were both really ill. I ended up in hospital, in intensive care and in a coma and they, from the start, expected me to die. My family came and said goodbye to me. But against the odds, I turned round and I fought back and I survived. Unfortunately, because of the heavy medications they had to put on to divert what blood flow there was to my vital organs, my extremities died. And I had to have all four of my limbs amputated. I can't teach anymore, so I've taken early retirement and I'm having to get used to living a new life. It's been one of the real pleasures of my recovery, being able to learn to do new things, to be able to celebrate those tiny achievements. You know, the first time I was able to feed myself and the first time I was able to use a stylus on the computer. And learning to walk was very much like that, but it's a much longer process. So there's immense amounts of physical work that you have to do first in order to have the core strength and the balance to be able to stand. So I spent a lot of time doing sit-ups and things like that. And I actually said to my pupils, you know, they would laugh to see me enjoying being in the gym because I did not have a gym body when I was a teacher at all. And for the first time in my life, I had abs. I've never had abs in my 50 years plus. And those things were actually really pleasurable. When we were first ill, the number of neighbours who stepped up, people we didn't even know, to come and walk our dog, to bring us groceries. You know, it was incredible how kind people had been. And that, certainly where we live, has really persisted. From my school, when the children heard what had happened, a lot of them independently set up their own fundraisers for me, which was just phenomenal and so touching. My daughter set up a GoFundMe page and people were so generous to that and it's enabled us to make the adaptations that we need at home now. So, you know, I've been able to put in a stair lift. 
I've been able to set up getting an extension made so I can have access into the house because at the moment I can't get a wheelchair into the house. And I think it has brought out the best in a lot of people and that's not denying what a dreadful thing it is. But I think there are an awful lot of good things have come out of this. I prefer to focus on the positives, and I really try to. That's not to say I don't have my bad days. And I think most of us who've survived with long-lasting impact can see how the government's actions or inactions or delayed actions and U-turns have so negatively affected everyone. You know, there are lots of people who are really struggling with their health and the impact it's had on the NHS who have coped amazingly. Another of my daughters is a doctor, so, you know, I know how hard it's been. It needn't have been this way. There needn't have been so many people died. And, you know, the government have never counted people like me in all their statistics. They've never looked at what about the ones who do survive? What about the impact on them? And that's huge as well, and that's going to go on for years. I think the question we've really got to ask ourselves isn't, are we kind? I think on the whole, you know, people probably are kind. Pretty all right. There's some bastards, sure. But the real question isn't, are we being nice to each other? The real question is, does the system work for everyone? Is it fair? And how far have we really come since the blitz in making society better? When the shit hits the fan, who gets filthiest? My father-in-law used to tell me that there's no such thing as a selfless act. And you know, he wasn't being a miserable grumpy bastard. He was a therapist and an old hippie philosopher. But the point was that ultimately things we do for others make us feel good for doing them. So we're actually getting something out of it. I'm not going to lie. For me, lockdown has been okay. It started off like me perfect type of holiday. I didn't have to go anywhere and no one could visit. Bliss. My wife's here, my daughter's here, my stuff's here, and I like being at home. Plus being self-employed, you know, I never just take time off for the sake of it. And I think I've needed a break from the constant travelling and gigging for ages now. So to have it enforced on me, it certainly had some benefits. But I've had enough now. I've been one of the lucky ones, not stuck on my own, and with nice neighbours to boot. I've had the figurative Anderson shelter in the communal garden. Here's an interesting example. Novelist Dina Nayeri, author of The Ungrateful Refugee. She's originally from Iran, but now lives here in Britain. And when the first lockdown struck, she found herself accidentally stranded in France. Lucky for some, eh? But stuck as she was, and like all the rest of us, you know, just trying to adjust to this new and scary reality of COVID, she actually found herself finding more and more parallels to her childhood growing up in Iran. She remembered hunkering down in communal bomb shelters during the shellings when she was little and finding an odd sense of community spirit there, even illicit moments of joy and pleasure. So I was born around the time of the revolution in Iran in 1979. And then shortly thereafter, the country went to war with Iraq. So I grew up the first eight years of my life in a newly formed Islamic Republic under the hijab, very strict rules. And then also with a country that was 
at war. There were air raids and food rationing and just scary news all the time. And then in the middle of all of this, my mother decides to convert from Islam to Christianity. So as if things were not just like bad enough, you know, yeah. she, she was a doctor. She had an office where a lot of women visited. And so she talked about converting to Christianity and she proselytized and then very quickly thereafter got herself into some serious trouble. So we escaped Iran. We became refugees, and we were sent to a refugee camp outside of Rome. We lived there for a while until the U.S. granted us asylum. Then I went to live in Oklahoma, which was only slightly worse. <laughs> I, I lived in Oklahoma for eight years until I was 18, um, you know, a couple of master's degrees, and then I moved to Europe. You came over here. How old was you when you came to London? I only came in 2015. You lived here before you moved to France. Is that, yeah, is that exactly. right? Yeah, Actually, yeah, yeah. London is still my permanent home. The only reason I went to France is because I won a fellowship with the Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination, which is in Paris. The pandemic hit, and, you know, we're still in France because of the pandemic. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're, <laughs> you're one of the pandemic castaways. Exactly. I, I'm, okay. I'm kind of pining for my London flat and my roses, which are probably all dead. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can kiss the roses goodbye. I, know, I think the roses are gone. Um, I want to go back a little bit, if we can, back to your childhood in the 80s, growing mm. up in Iran, where war was just the norm, wasn't it? No, that's exactly right. It was destruction and devastation. It became the norm, especially for someone my age, because I was born exactly when it started. And people very quickly adjusted to a new kind of living. We were every yeah. day, you know, taping up our windows because there was some kind of siren, you know, a red alert or a yellow alert for bombs coming in from Iraq. And then on top of that, there was just no news you could trust because the government news source was just basically dishing out propaganda. So we had to somehow try to get like the BBC or, you know, some way of knowing what was happening in our own country. Was there any normality at all in terms of, was there any education? Were kids playing out on the street a lot or, yeah. or was it very much being stuck at home with family? You know, the pandemic times remind me so much of that time because there is this instinct for people to go back to their normal, you know, to try to live life, to try to not let the time pass without normalcy. So we did go to school and um, people just made their own joy like they yeah. had always done. And it really mattered little what was going on outside, except, of course, when we had a loss. So people made their own bomb shelters. So often people ran to basements and three families on one side and maybe three families in the building next door would all go in the same basement and they would yeah. wait. And because, you know, this was families coming together and holding kind of a fretting and worrying sort of mood, it became a social situation. So for example, teenagers who had previously been forbidden from interacting with the opposite sex, you know, so you, you knew that there was a young girl living next door, a boy living next door, but you couldn't talk to them, but you wanted to, this was the chance to do it. Yeah. But, but the thing that would happen that was interesting is over time, because people knew that they would be running down to the shelters, they started to kind of outfit the shelters in in um you know in comfortable <laughs> ways let's throw some pillows in there yeah move the bikes maybe we need a little water pipe maybe a samovar for some tea and you yeah. know somewhere to sit after a while it was kind of a nice place to go and and there's this old joke about the bomb siren and then the grandmothers like grab a pot of rice and all the opium and <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a hell of a party <laughs> 
like run down to the shelter. It's really quite fantastic. You might be there for a long time. You're not going to leave your dinner upstairs. If you were to invite me to a casserole and opium party now, I'd give it a go. So. In the basement. That's right. Yeah. And as a child, I mean, it was my normal, but I knew that it wasn't normal. Do you know what I mean? If, yeah, yeah, If that yeah. makes sense. And it wasn't always a party downstairs. Sometimes you're just kind of huddled in the room. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And it was dark. How was the emotion at that, at that time? I was terrified. Absolutely right. terrified. Yeah, because the thing is, you had also seen images on TV that children just should not see. And I still remember a particular image it was something I saw on TV when I was like left by myself for 10 minutes with the television on. And it was this, these two boys sorting through the rubble of their house, looking for the body parts of their parents. I mean, I was just oh, Jesus. Yeah. like, absolutely. I mean, this thing imprinted, it imprinted in my brain. And it was really terrifying. The idea that, you know, I might lose one of my parents, had my dad come home from work yet, you know, where was my yeah. mother? Or the idea that the bomb could just hit us. I mean, it was this feeling of extreme helplessness. You compare these experiences that you had of growing up in Iran to your experiences or of lockdown now. What, what do you mean by that? What are the comparisons that you see between the two? Because they look very different to me. Well, for me, I think there were just a couple of things in my own experience of lockdown in Paris that very quickly brought back the old memories, you know? Long, long bouts of being at home without any purpose or knowing when it would end and waiting mm -hmm. for some authority to tell you, okay, you, it's safe. Constantly reading the news for the death toll, for the numbers. Um, you know, the feeling of powerlessness against this unseen thing, this enemy that you can't see that might kill you. My daughter got sick during the March, April Paris confinement and she started showing symptoms, you know, um, mm -hmm. and I remember just the absolute panic. I remember the mothers during wartime, you know, when one of the kids would come home late, when there was a siren and they couldn't, you know, yeah. identify exactly where each kid was, you know, the sense of like panic and you can't even talk, you can't be rational, you're just a creature, you know, wanting yeah. to get their child to safety. And that's what it felt like to have. It was the same, the same emotion. Yeah. And so it's a, you know, there's this talk of, well, let's not make comparisons. You can't compare refugees to comfortable people in the pandemic. And I'm not asking for any kind of equivalence, but I do think that this mm -hmm. is a place where we should make a parallel so that we can build our empathy and also make sense of what we're going through. Because as someone who's lived through being a refugee and a war and the pandemic, I can tell you that there are similar psychological, emotional sensations. You know, it's stress that very much parallels. And I think it's got to do with, you know, fear for your life, with powerlessness and a sense that you can't know when it will end, which is very much like being a refugee. And then this idea mm -hmm. that like, you know, somehow that the world has changed right? That there's this altered new reality and that you have to get used to it. You have to pull your family through it. And everything that mm -hmm. was important before suddenly diminishes. That feeling is so very similar. And I hope what that does for people is that once we come out of this and once the world is vaccinated and we have some kind of normal, which, you know, won't be for a few years, that we'll look back at the people who are still in those situations, people in refugee camps, right? People who are displaced, who are still waiting for some authority to tell them that they can leave and they can start their life. I, I would compare my own situation now to be probably not as bad as a lot of people in this country and certainly nowhere near as bad as you know people in refugee camps. But it's still been stressful from my own relative perspective. And it, it would be nice to think that we can all 
take these experiences and hope to see some wider change and some wider appreciation and acceptance. Yeah, and I don't think we're required to like downplay our own suffering in these times. I think what's better is to just say, okay, well, I know that person is going through more, but there are things to be learned, you know, and I'm going to mm-hmm. grow my empathy. I think you can definitely learn a lot from refugees for people now going through the pandemic because you're just kind of circling back to this whole idea of like finding your joy in the cracks of a very dark time. Refugees are experts at that. Um, There was this Mm -hmm. wonderful, wonderful memory that I have of visiting a refugee camp in Greece. And I heard like some giggling and and noise coming out. And I heard Farsi words coming out of one of the shipping crates. And I knocked on the door and there was this group of women, five or six of them all sitting on the floor. And they had used the rations, you know, a flour and egg and stuff that the camp gives them. And they combined all their rations and they were making pasta, you know. So they were making like rolling fresh pasta and they were, you know, cutting it in these perfect to make Iranian noodle soup. So I'm looking at this and it's glorious. I mean, they're making this gorgeous pasta. And I asked them, well, you know, is this the first batch? And they're like, no, we've done hundreds. And I said, well, where's the rest? And one of them showed me a back room where they had overturned a bed and were using like the (laughs) mattress frame to hang pasta. And I still have this wonderful picture that brings me joy of a refugee camp mattress frame covered (laughs) in hand rolled pasta. And it's just such a perfect metaphor for what we can make of some something ugly and sad it probably made a, a better pasta rack than it did a bed as it, well yes. <laughs> the funny thing is actually one of those ladies made that exact joke yeah <laughs> but you know people just start to make jokes out of the whole thing they start to try to connect to each other through humor and to try to forget just the discomforts of it unless there's something really tragic going on so it's just our human nature to try to find our way back to a happy place That was Dina Nayeri, author of the book The Ungrateful Refugee. I keep on coming back to that stupid poster. Keep calm and carry on. And all I can say is, don't do that. If you want to freak out, then freak out and do things differently. Paddle like hell underneath and don't be afraid to let it show on your face. Acknowledging the reality of the situation is probably our best shot at changing things. And I mean meaningful change, big change so that when the next crisis hits, we can genuinely say that we've come a long way in making things fairer for everyone. So be kind, do kind things, because who knows what the hell's around the corner next. Part two of That Podcast, where we rely on the kindness of strangers and wonder if generally we're good people, or not so much, was hosted by Chris McCausland and featured Dina Nayeri and contributions from members of the public. The Kindness of Strangers was written and performed by Athena Stevens and directed by Jennifer Baxt, with sound design by Helen Atkinson. Milky Drinks was written by Tim Crouch, performed by Amber James and directed by Jennifer Baxt, with sound design by Max Pappenheim. The host script was written by Jennifer Baxt and Chris McCausland. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Storyglass and ETT co-production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.